Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously After a Short Break. But we're back, so you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, we're here. We're here. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine. (laughs) So Caroline, you've been away. Lucky thing from work. So how's that been going for you? Yes, I went on holiday to Scotland, which was very nice. Went on a lot of trains and saw a lot of nice places in the Highlands. And generally... You were on the Hogwarts Express? Not actually the Hogwarts Express, sadly, but it was a steam train. How nice. And it went through some mountains, so it was pretty good. That sounds delicious. It went to a place called Boat of Garten. Boat of Garten? I could not work out why it's called that. And now in my head, I've just got Juno going, Gota (laughs) Raus. For no reason. So yeah, that was really fun. Also, while we were up there, I found in a secondhand bookshop an entire set of Anne of Green Gables books, which I really wanted but wasn't going to buy because I thought, no, they are childish. Also heavy. Also heavy. For a steam train journey. (laughs) Yeah. But my boyfriend was like, you really want them and they're only £1.50 each buy them so Aww. i did and then proceeded to read the entire anne of green gables series in the remainder of our holiday and that's like eight books that's a really really impressive feat yeah i've haven't read anything that fast since like the new harry potter book would come out yeah. you know and you'd like drink it in in like six hours which was glorious because i'd sort of forgotten that anne of green gables existed did you ever read them no never oh they're amazing so they're they're set in on prince edward island in canada in like the late 19th, early 20th century, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're about Anne, the titular Anne, who is an orphan who gets adopted by this brother and older brother and sister who live in a small village on a farm. And it's just about her adventures. But yeah, it's just really happy and lovely. Oh, and, that's so nice. Yes. That's the perfect holiday read, really, mm. because it's sort of escapist as you are escaping your life. Yeah, it did also make me feel like I am the anti-Kindle. I walked around Scotland with like a backpack with like eight hardback books in it. <laughs> you are weird. You're I just know. truly weird. <laughs> well, while you've been gone, you know, I've just been working and missing you and full Aww. of cold. So oh, sorry yeah, you if you can. Ill. Yeah, sorry if you can hear that. Seriously, listeners, I'll, I'll try my best to tone it down. 
We also need to say thank you very much to all of you who sent us birthday wishes while we were away, which was really, really nice of you. And it was really lovely to mark the first year of Seriously. So crazy. Mm. One thing I did do this weekend was me and my sister went to go see the new Ghostbusters movie. Which coincidentally is the thing we're going to talk about first on this week's podcast. Hey, seamless. Yay, seamless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, the new Ghostbusters film, it's a reboot of the original Ghostbusters film from 1984. It's directed by Paul Feig and it stars Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones, Melissa McCarthy and Kate McKinnon as four women who start a ghost catching business in New York City. We have dedicated our whole lives to studying the paranormal. Now there's sightings all over the city. There are people out there that need our help. Holtzman, you're a brilliant engineer. Erin, no one's better at quantum physics than you. We can provide a real service. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. Okay. And, and this is something I really enjoyed, incidentally, it has cameos from the original cast members, including Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, and Ernie Hudson. Mate, I only noticed Bill Murray. What? Did you not notice Bill? Um, yeah, so Bill Murray Sigourney. was the guy in the hat, and then yeah. Sigourney Weaver was right at the very end, was Kate McKinnon's, like, mentor, older, crazy inventor uh, lady, and Ernie Hudson was Leslie Jones's uncle that she borrowed. With the car. With the car. Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, there were quite a few of them. Well, that was... Subtle. Yeah. <laughs> and lost on me. Not a fan of the original Ghostbusters movie particularly. I'm not particularly either. I have seen it. I think I've seen it a couple of times. I remember but... it being like quite rude for a family film, wasn't there? Isn't mm-hmm. there like a weird ghost sex scene? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Bizarre. With Sigourney Weaver. There's no ghost sex scenes in this. There are not, no. Some people might be saddened to hear, others delighted. <laughs> Depends. So it's been I hate to say this, but the film has been kind of controversial in the sense that it's taken a thing a lot of thirty something men liked from their childhood and put ladies in it. Yeah, I mean whiny man babies of the world united in sort of disgruntled effrontery just to basically yeah, be absolute idiots about this. Yeah, and it's what I find so amusing about it is that they can't find a real reason not to like it because mm-hmm. I think generally critics have all agreed that it's a pretty good film. And pretty spirited, like it's yeah. pretty much in keeping with the tone of the original, right? Exactly, it, even by having the cameos, like it pays homage to the original mm-hmm. but does something new with it and it seems to be a fairly successful reboot, whatever you want to call it. So all these dudes are like, I don't like it for reasons can't really articulate other than women. Ah, Feminist propaganda, I feel like, is a phrase yeah. that's been battered around. And then today, I, I mean... It's got even worse, hasn't it? So mm. Ghostbusters has had a pretty, a pretty good opening weekend. Like it hasn't broken any records, has it? But it's been done absolutely healthily. Mm. And I think basically the Ghostbusters trolls ran out of ways to sort of prove that they were right. They tried really hard to like affect the, the opening weekend figures, try and stop people from going to the box office. That didn't work. So they just resorted to out-and-out racist trolling of Leslie Jones. Yeah, it's really, really horrible. It's disgusting. Like, looking at some of the tweets she's been sent, like, it was really horrible. She's sort of gone off her Twitter account for a bit. She's left Twitter now. Yeah, this is the kind of thing we could talk about at length another time, but... Twitter need to get that act together, man. Yeah. Like, it's particularly horrible, because the thing about Twitter and abuse that's always been true, I feel, is that if you're a celebrity or you have a lot of followers, they've always been fairly quick to jump on Mm -hmm. helping you with stuff like this. Whereas if you're just a regular civilian with a few hundred followers and you get jumped on 
by horrible people, they're less likely to help. She is like a megastar, and yeah, they're but still... But also a black woman. But also a black woman. So, yeah. Someone out there should be able to stop this. It shouldn't be that complicated. But so, anyway... Moving enough, on. Moving on from the Let's horrible. not give them air, because this is the whole thing, isn't it, right? They've tried to distract from what is actually a great film. Yes. With this chat, and here we are, giving them oxygen. Blah. So, enough of that. Let's talk about the actual film, which I found really joyful. Really amazingly great fun. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed all the the performances from the, the lead four women. I mm-hmm. thought they were absolutely excellent. I was happy to see that this wasn't a film where there were like lots of little jokes about being a woman or no. like there was no sort of like, oh, and the guns are pink or or there was no sort of revelation that actually they were better Ghostbusters because they were women or anything like that. It was I just that. Just they, women doing their thing. And they didn't even make reference, really, other than the fact that they had the original actors in cameos. But they were all cameos that were things other than Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. you know. So there was no... In fact, they were sort of in mansplaining yeah. roles. But that again, that sounds like heavy-handed, and it was not. It was sort of quite nice and subtle that all the male characters in this are basically, like, idiots and, yeah. and people who are obstacles. But there was no sense of, like, inheritance or now we are letting the girls have mm-hmm. a go. It was mm-hmm. just they happen to be women doing this thing yeah i actually am sort of indifferent to the busting of ghosts yeah me too this is the thing like i was saying this to my boyfriend who is a massive fan of the original and he was like no no no, the busting of ghosts is everything (laughs) like when i was a kid like i made my own proton pack with cardboard tubes and all this (laughs) stuff me and my cousin and like me and my cousin ran around busting ghosts and i was like but why? Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not. I could have watched this film without the ghost element. I just loved the lead four actors. They're so funny. I love like Kristen Wiig's like weird sort of awkward like tone that she has just down. <laughs> They're all really good at finding the humor in sort of a fairly yeah. banal conversation. I loved the sort of bits with Kristen Wiig and Chris Hemsworth so much. So Chris, really funny. Chris Hemsworth plays the receptionist that they hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just basically a beautiful idiot. Yeah. That's his, That's his, his entire, role. entire role. So he's really hot and incredibly stupid. Yeah. But really cheerful and like happy. And Kristen Wiig fancies the pants off him. But she's sort of like a slightly, I don't know, awkward, contained. Yeah. She's not going to like really go for it. But there's like a great scene where she sort of tries to dance with him a little bit. <laughs> it's like really, really funny. Um, and th- I loved that there was a line towards the end where they were like, oh no, we've got to save him. Like, he's our receptionist and we're not going to get another one that pretty. And I like, <laughs> loved the casual misogyny of it. I just thought it was so funny. I think a lot of people have picked out this moment, but there's a moment in it in one of the main fight scenes where Kate McKinnon is like, got her two sort of weird laser gun things and mm. she like licks oh, one. Yeah. And it's like so, it's like the that moment in every action film where the guy is just doing some really cool action that you never really get to see women do in a sort of like non-sexual way. Like licking a gun in a non-sexual way. Like it doesn't make sense on paper, but it so does. Yeah, when you film. see her do it, it's it's kind of gross. Yeah. And it fits completely with her character, who is very strange. Yeah. And otherworldly. Yeah. And, and stuff. But also at the same time, you're like, she's so cool. She's so cool. I just loved how fun it was. Shout out to all the men as well who were just really committed to playing mm. these like really like dislikable but really funny roles. Well, very briefly to hark back to where we started with this, 
I can see why the trolls don't like this film because the central villain in it is basically an MRA. Yeah, like, I mean, they didn't know that when they decided to hit yeah. on this film for context. No, of course not. But, but it, yeah, he it mocks that male entitlement yeah. extremely well. Like, his whole motivation for trying to unleash like psychic ghosty hell on new york is that like mm-hmm. girls wouldn't go out with him and there's like a couple of moments where they're sort of scrolling through what people think of their ghost busting ability online and there's like comments like bitches can't bust no ghosts yeah <laughs> and like that kind of stuff's really funny that they've like just turned the knife a little bit more into all those people who didn't want this film to be a success and it just it really has been it's got its problems some people have like criticized parts of it i think probably quite fairly yeah like the idea that leslie james's character is a she's a tube worker she doesn't get to be a scientist and like there's some racial politics there that's probably a little bit questionable someone else said that the kate mckinnon's character was queer baity which i'm i'm not 100 percent i didn't see it like that but but i could understand why some people might you know, this is not a perfect film. What it is, is a really good action film that's funny, a comedy action film that children love. Like, the children in my cinema were losing their shit for this film. They mm. absolutely oh, loved great. it. Starring four women in the lead roles. Mm. And it's sad that that's revolutionary, but it actually just is. Mm. It just is. And it was amazing to see. So I'd say a healthy four stars. A healthy four stars. Go see it. And if there's a sequel, go support that too. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So the next thing we're going to talk about on the podcast is Orange is the New Black. If you've been living under a rock, Orange is the New Black is a Netflix original comedy drama series set in a women's prison. The fourth season, which was released on the service last month, began with the introduction of several new guards and a celebrity inmate, Chef Judy King. They hate me. I hate them. Our relationship is simple. Do you know the difference between pain and suffering? But suffering is a choice. I'm really tired of walking around like a dog. 
Now, we want to really like dissect this latest series of Orange is the New Black. We've both watched it all and we're going to go hard with full spoilers for the entire season. So if you're halfway through, don't listen, guys. Firstly, it's worth watching the whole of this series. It was really, really good. It was really worth watching. So go away if you haven't already. Do that. Finish up. Get right to the very last second of the very last episode and then come back and don't be upset if you get spoiled because we are fully spoiling. Yes, and you have been warned now. There is no way that you can say you have not been warned. Yeah, you've been fully warned. And also this series does rely on you. Like the the, the impact of it will be spoiled if you're spoiled. So switch off. Okay. Okay. Now we can begin. (laughs) So yeah, I loved this series. I thought it was really good. Like any series of Orange is the New Black, it had its ups and downs and its problems and whatever. But I was really moved. So was I. It's not really a series of like big twists and turns. It's not though. It it just builds to one like really strong climax. climax. There's not like peaks and troughs maybe in the way that there have been in, in other ones. So I feel like that slow burn basically begins with the introduction of these five new guards in the yeah. prison that's the main plot arc that you that affects all the other characters yes. that we know and love. so the difference is that in this one the prison's been privatized mm-hmm. and in order to make it a profit-making concern they've added loads more in- inmates and because of the more inmates they've had to add more guards well also at the end of the last season oh, the other ones walked out didn't there they? was yeah. that because of there was because of this privatization stuff that you're talking about that sort of began last season, the conditions just got worse and worse and worse, didn't they, right? Mm. And the guards were working overtime and not really getting paid properly for it. So they all walked out and they were struggling to hire qualified guards. So they hired a group of veterans. And the chief guard is this guy, Piscatello. Who is not a veteran, I don't think. He he comes from a maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. But he has a sort of pretty horrible streak yeah, that comes out in, in later episodes. There's a real menace about him that is very chilling. And he has a real obsession with the guards all sticking together mm-hmm. as a united front against the inmates. It's very us against them in his mind. And it's debatable in his mind whether Caputo is an us or a them. Yeah, because Caputo, despite the fact that he is the agent of the corporate Mm -hmm. entity in this series, Caputo does still see them as people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time he's struggling against decisions he's made himself to try and compensate for the fact that the the company wants to treat them like they're just like units of product rather than actual people. And Piscatella, I think, is very much more of the corporate mindset. He's like... At one point, I think he even says, like, humanity doesn't come into it when it comes to inmates. Yeah, like, he always calls them inmates. There's, it's funny because it's some t- at some moments he seems to have more sympathy with people, mm. but then it all sort of fairly suddenly disappears. The issue with the guards is that they're quite easily swayed, right? And then, the, so they've got this presence, Piscatello, and then the other real sort of dominant presence is this guard, Humphrey, who they call Hump, who sort of stays in the background for the first five episodes or so. Yeah, you don't really see much of him. And then you realise he's got an extremely sadistic streak via one of the most, like, horrifying scenes on television that I've ever seen. It's not for the faint-hearted, where he um, basically hears Maritza and Flacca having a little would-you-rather-style conversation about would-you-rather-eat ten dead flies or one tiny baby mouse. And off the back of hearing them do that conversation... Maritza drives the van, he uses that to isolate her, make him come into his home, and then puts a gun to her head and he's got ten real dead flies and one baby mouse and forces her to eat the the baby mouse. And obviously 
in her mind in the joke it's just like oh it's just a little jelly bean what does it matter and then the reality and the horror of that situation just like it's really really grim and then afterwards you just see her like struggling with the trauma of that so this is the kind of behavior that is basically becoming sanctioned by this style of guarding the inmates because it's not like there has been cruelty from the guards towards the inmates before but it's never been, it's always been under the radar and where they have been caught. Like, I'm thinking back in series past where Porn Stash was revealed to have like raped Dyer mm-hmm. and he was fired immediately mm-hmm. and you never saw him in the prison again. Yeah. You know, whereas it's you a feel, different, it's a completely different world. You feel like now, even if one of the inmates did manage to get Caputo to believe her that something of that level had happened, like if Doggett went and told and was able to yeah, prove about they, her own rape, about her God. own raped by a guard they'd probably just be like well you know you don't work with him anymore so what's the problem yeah exactly tasty had a really fun plot line for most mm. of this series where she was like basically caputo's pa and yeah. so she got like access to the internet and loads of other stuff so i loved her storyline i found Pousset's storyline with brooke kind of like meh kind of boring like yeah it was really... nice to see her happy but i also i'm not like not hugely keen on brooke no and Pousset when she's really in love with someone is a bit wet i sort of like it when she's like making all the jokes i did enjoy the few moments that she had with judy king the celebrity yeah, that was chef really great who's now in prison and pusey's been a massive fan of hers suzanne's storyline i was a little bit like oh i hate to see suzanne in trouble and in danger and there's yeah. a lot of that again and that, I, that i really hate to see that but then the thing we should talk about really is the last episode or the second to last episode where it all comes to a head basically there's a there's a running theme across the series about protesting against these awful guards as they become weirder and weirder people standing on tables for hours and hours and hours um and then that this comes to a head in the canteen and everyone starts standing on tables and piscatella is like right we're going to remove them by force it all gets completely crazy everyone's being pulled out of nowhere and then bailey who we've been very sympathetic to as a guard right bailey is the officer who's probably the most guilty and the most likely to see all the inmates as people and Mm. he's spoken out he's the only one who's spoken out about what he's seen going on around him and then he is being told to pull people off the off the tables he pulls Pousset off the table uh onto the floor is sort of kneeling on her throat basically and in the meantime like doing loads of other stuff and just like isn't paying attention yeah she just suffocates underneath him it's it's honestly one of the most awful awful things i've ever seen on tv especially because she's a character that you've loved so much so they knew exactly who they were choosing like she's just just the most lovable character and also her backstory is so it's clear that with a character like Pousset the powers that be are going to struggle to enforce the narrative they would like to enforce on her they can't be like she was violent because she's got absolutely no violent history at all we know that she was imprisoned for a really really small drugs offense that was extremely like petty she's been a model inmate she was due for early release she had agreed a job that she was ready to get when she on the way out like everything about her is perfect and she still died because she was black because someone you know saw her as a threat didn't think of her as a person that needed medical attention it's really really depressing and it's especially depressing in a way because we've been encouraged to see bailey as someone who's basically not a racist yeah but then he still does this very racist thing and that's quite difficult for audiences to come to terms with i think and there's been some criticism of that i you know about the idea that we we're encouraged too much to sympathize with him 
But I think in general, what it emphasised throughout the whole series is this idea that you immediately sympathise with people who look like you. Mm, So Caputo really struggles to condemn this guy. He doesn't want to do it. He just says he was a victim of the system. There's a lot of of this whole, like, Caputo, his whole struggle all season is like, am I a bad prison officer or a good prison officer? But the question that he could ever be like an inmate never even enters his mind. He doesn't even get that far. And I think that's the same with a lot of characters. Like Piper is like, am I a good white person or a bad white person? But she never actually properly extends her empathy to people who aren't even white at all. Yeah. And this is the thing overall with Orange is the New Black, I think, is that the conflict is between the system and the individual. Mm-hmm. And the the temptation is to say, well, bad things only happen to individuals because of the system. Where actually what it makes you confront is that bad things happen to individuals because of the system and because of individuals' bad choices. Yeah. And and that individuals and the system sometimes are impossible to separate. Yes, exactly. Because the system has infiltrated Bailey as an individual so much that that was it. That that was all it took for Pousset to die. It's really distressing. And then it all culminates with basically a, a revolt. Mm. And uh, someone manages to pull a gun, but... Hunt brings a gun into the prison, which is just like the most stupid thing anyone could ever do. Um, they manage to pull it off him, thank God. But then they're left with the gun and he's on the floor. So basically the whole season ends with Dyer pointing a gun at Hump. Which was a really interesting choice because the obvious choice would have been Maritza, right? Yeah. After we saw Hump particularly attack Maritza or maybe Suzanne after he forced her to fight. But instead they go for Dyer, who's had this sort of slow burn storyline where she's been getting involved with some like basically criminal activity within the prison she's got a lot to lose as well Dyer, mm. because she's we know she's got a baby on the outside so i thought that was a slightly off the wall but maybe quite interesting choice to have her as the sort of like final f- it wasn't quite the final frame because they did a really interesting thing which was they ended with Pousset breaking the fourth wall yeah. and looking into the camera from her like previous life before prison which was just like was oh my god devastating tears awful devastating but yeah it was... well, i think actually the choice of having dyer be the sort of final actor in that way is kind of reinforces the fact that orange is the new black is an ensemble drama now mm-hmm. when it first started i remember the way it was covered was all about like oh it's based on this like piper kerman's real memoir mm-hmm. it's all about piper and the kind of the plot line for the first half of the first series was about like white lady goes to prison mm-hmm. how does she cope it's not about that anymore. Yeah. It's about everybody. Yeah. So a really interesting season with a lot to sort of get your head around. Yeah. But definitely worth watching. So last week, or a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were doing this, I recommended that Caroline read The Silent Woman. Part literary biography, part scathing denunciation of that entire genre, the book explores portraits of Sylvia Plath and how they came to be, with particular focus on Anne Stevenson's bitter fame. And it's by Janet Malcolm, who's just a writer that I absolutely love. Caroline, what did you think of this book? I really felt like my eyes had been opened by it actually. I am not a particular Sylvia Plath fan, nor a Ted Hughes fan. I am aware of the biographical details in the barest possible sense, Mm -hmm. that she killed herself, that he married other people, blah, blah, blah. I've never read a biography of either of them, so Mm -hmm. I wasn't really privy to the, like, 
colossal controversy that exists in that. Um, several times Malcolm refers to like the Plath Hughes biographical community and by the end of it I really felt I knew what she meant by that. It's like this small group of people, some of whom knew Plath and Hughes personally, who've just been churning out memoirs and biographies and then like letters to other biographers and like it's like a little industrial complex all of its own. There is so much out there on Mm. this. There are like so many full-length books but then there's also loads of like articles written by friends like um there's this one by Dido Merwin that people come back to a lot and Al Alvarez and it's just this weird like intense like super intense world where as soon as you get into it you feel like you have to pick a side right yeah absolutely and that's partly what her book is about in a meta sense in that she's trying to say can you ever write an objective biography? And more than that, can you ever write an objective biography while a lot of the people involved in it are still alive? And this is where Anne Stevenson, the author of Bitter Fame, a famously controversial biography of Sylvia Plath, that's why it's controversial, because doesn't I think Anne Stevenson acknowledges very early on in the introduction that the book is essentially a collaboration between her and Alwyn Hughes. Hughes. And this caused people to discount the book almost immediately. It's like, oh, well, you can't write a good biography if you're being helped by the sister of the person it's partially about. Which I think might be true, but Janet Malcolm is very provocative with her ideas that basically, why would we immediately be like, oh, if someone knew them personally and if we take the, the feelings of people who are still alive into account, that's terrible. And she paints biography really as this quite invasive, mm. she calls it a burglary at yeah. one point, like a burglary of people's you know, private lives, even as she's writing this very personal book. Well, I have to say, what reading this book did do for me is it very much made me think about events that I was slightly involved in in 2010 completely differently, which was when the Melvin Bragg guest edited The New Statesman and he secured this tremendous coup of getting a previously unpublished poem that Ted Hughes wrote about Sylvia Plath's death Mm. to be published in his issue. And he got it, um, I think he found it in one of the archives you know, because lots of their papers are now held by various universities. And he found it, I think, in one of the these archives. And he secured the permission. So now it's Carol Hughes, um, Ted Hughes' third wife, I think mm. she is, who is now like the gatekeeper of, of all this. And he, I think, had an existing relationship with her and she agreed to let him publish it in, in this issue of the New Statesman for the first time. And then she changed her mind, like, every single day for three months. And it was incredibly fraught. And finally, we did publish it. And I was, it was one of my first ever jobs, like working Mm. here when that was happening. And like the world's media descended on us in a way that I had no idea was going to happen. And I feel like now I've read this book, I know why. It's because Ted Hughes, he used his sister as a proxy. He used his own various writings as a proxy, but he never, he never wrote a book about Sylvia Plath. Yeah. Like, he wrote various introductions to some of her writings, but he was just not there. That was his way of dealing with, I think, the, the burglary, as it were, was just to like absent himself. So actually to have something that he wrote about this like pivotal moment quite crazy. in their lives was completely crazy. Yeah. He sort of suggested things via forewords and yeah. letters and things like this. And he used to correct things factually. So like, it's mm. so interesting that A Silent Woman ends with, because I think it was originally published as a really long essay in The New Yorker, mm-hmm. and then subsequently turned into a book the year later. And in the interim, Janet Malcolm had an exchange of letters with Ted Hughes, where he was like, one point where you say, 
such and such. And there's actually a letter missing from that archive. Well, there must be, because you wouldn't have put this interpretation on if you'd read said letter. And then he sends her the letter and she's like, no, I didn't see that. It's not in the archive. But I'm not sure it really changes my thesis because blah, blah, blah. And like, so her her meta commentary on the problems of biography ends with even more meta, the, the, yeah. pr- the problem of biography, which is when one of the p- people is still alive, they will feel differently. It's it's crazy, and it, it's so good on like the ethics of biography mm. as a whole. She's like, and it's the same if if any of you have read or know about her book, The Journalist and the Murderer. She's very like damning of the entire mm. affair, even as she is sort of a biographer and a sort of a journalist. There's a great quote in it that I love, where she says, "Memory is notoriously unreliable when it's intertwined with ill will. It may be monstrously unreliable." The good biographer is supposed to be able to discriminate among the testimonies of witnesses and have his antennae out for tenditious distortions, misrememberings, and outright lies. And that she says good biographer in quotation marks in a way that you know she does not believe a good biographer exists. Yeah, she doesn't think there's it's, it's not possible. possible. No. It really got me into that sort of like biography in general and like it's just a really like crazy ethically impossible thing to negotiate and her book is like very very provoking it's really funny because it also makes you start to wonder how how well you can ever know a person any person and also to what extent like a true self is even a thing Mm. there's a letter that ted hughes wrote to the independent in the 90s and in it he said i hope that each of us owns the facts of her or his own life and as you read this book you realize that that's just not true no not at (laughs) all you don't actually i wrote this quote down from it where uh, Janet Malcolm saying, he said, it isn't only our secrets that survive us. Evidently, every cup of coffee we ever drank, ev- every hamburger we ever ate, every boy we ever kissed has been inscribed on somebody's memory and lies in impatient readiness for the biographer's retrieval. It's like, if you end up being of such intense interest as Sylvia Plath and mm-hmm. Ted Hughes, then, like, the guy you bought your coffee from every morning at the cafe down the road has got something to say about you that a biographer could record. Mm-hmm. You know, even people that probably Sylvia Plath had forgotten existed have written memoirs about her, about her yeah. and their feelings about her. And it's it's also so funny how much people have their own narratives and you realise how much that is just about the person mm. writing the books. So after I read that, this, I w- went and read the other sort of main biographies of Sylvia Plath. And there's just, you can almost tell from the titles, there's one called The Death and Life of Sylvia mm. Plath that is just so about how her suicide affected everything, that she always knew she was going to do it, that the depression in her life is why her poems are like this. And, and you know, some other people like Alavarez think that she it was an accident, it was a cry for help, she didn't actually want to die. Yeah. And depending on the kind of person you are, you can create a completely different story about this person from those bare facts. And even this, this letter by Dido Merwin, which paints this horrible portrait of Sylvia Plath as just this absolutely selfish, uncaring person... It's really all about how she came to Dido Merwin's house and ate all the food in her fridge yeah. and was and like a bad house guest. And didn't apologise, yeah. That's, that's really where it all comes from. Janet Malcolm loves that letter from Dido Merwin and calls it a, a subversively lively piece of writing, which I think is a very good way to describe this book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But just as a postscript to that, but I remember last year when um, Jonathan Bates' new biography of Ted Hughes yeah, came out. which was very controversial. Very controversial because exactly what... Uh, Janet Malcolm describes happened to him which is that he started out writing this with the full cooperation of the Ted Hughes literary estate and then partway through they decided that they didn't like the direction of his work and withdrew permission 
to quote stuff and all the, all the same tactics. And so he ended up with a book that's called something like the Ted Hughes, the unauthorised version or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it, it necessarily doesn't have really any quotes because he, from the from sort of the poems and the archives. Because he didn't get copyright permission to, to use them. Like it just, it will never end. I would really recommend as well, Janet Malcolm actually reviewed that Jonathan Bate book. Oh, really? Yeah, in the New York Review of Books, I think it was. And it is absolutely damning. It's sort of casual in its devastation, mm. you know. What Bate writes about Hughes's poetry in the HarperCollins text is of staggering superficiality. <laughs> he tells you what he does and doesn't like. When he likes a poem, he, term- he uses terms like aching beauty and achingly sad. When he dislikes a poem, he will talk of Hughes operating on autopilot. Oh. It is odd to read that last awkward phrase. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Janet Malcolm, a very intense writer who's definitely worth dipping yeah. into if you never have done before. And I think if, if like me, you are not in any way an aficionado of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, her book is a really good intro to it. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to recommend me for next time, Caroline? Something very different. It is the 2005 film Bewitched which was written and directed by Nora Ephron and stars oh, cool. Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell. And it is, in a sense, a remake of the old TV show Bewitched, you know, the mm-hmm. one about um, a witch who, like, lives a American suburban And she life. wiggles her nose and it goes... She yes. does some magic. Yes, exactly. Her name's Samantha. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's partly a remake of that, but it's also, like, a film about making a film in the sense that Nicole Kidman plays a real-life witch of the Samantha type who then gets cast to play Samantha in, love it. in a TV remake. That is ridiculous, and I love it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, among the highlights, Michael Caine as her dad. Wicked. And Shirley MacLaine, who plays the older woman in the TV series who's, like, Samantha's aunt or something, who, like, appears and just messes things up for her periodically. And in real life as well, she, like, messes with Michael Caine. And it's it's really good. So excited. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Seriously. All you have to do is search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcasting app you use. While you're there, it would be really great if you could leave us an iTunes review as it helps other people find the show. We also rely on you listeners for your recommendations. So if you want to tell us what you thought about something or if you've got something we should watch, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, via email. All the details are on seriouslypodcast.com. If you like, you can also recommend us to your friends, family, neighbours, strangers. Let them know that you like the podcast and they should be listening to it too. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.